Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I have a very special episode for you this week. As you can tell by the title, I do not normally review other people's albums. I usually, I've reviewed mine. And uh, that's in the way of getting description and some backstory and stuff out there. But, uh, and also, you know, some free promotion. I have a show. Why would I not promote my own stuff? But this is all about Deep Purple's 21st studio album, Whoosh. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This album just came out on August 7th, the last day of National Clown Week. I know that's not a worldwide holiday. It's barely even a United States holiday, but there it is. So the album comes out, and within a couple of days, they're chart-topping all over the world. And it's just awesome to see. For a band that started in 1968, they've been together for 52 years, sometimes a little bit on and off, which is understandable. But, but how many bands have really sustained that long? Very few uh, but uh, but here you've got three people from probably the most known, uh, considered classic Mark II lineup, one person who's still an original member of the band, and also uh, we have some players that have been in the band for a long time. So this lineup has been together for a, a quite some time. You've got Steve Morse on guitar, Don Airy on keyboards, Ian Pace on drums, Roger Glover on bass, and Ian Gillen on vocals. And you guys have heard me talk about how much this band means to me. Biggest influence uh, in my career by a country mile. And uh, not not just the music. And, I mean, I've learned so much from the music about how the, the interplay between different members works, how solid the rhythm section can be with giving each other the freedom to go where they want to go. Uh, the interplay between guitar and keyboards and then just the overall sound of the band and then the whole process of adding vocals to it. And as Ian Gillen has said many times, it's an instrumental band that I put vocals to because the way that they record is they actually record all the music first, and then Ian sits down, works on the lyrics. I don't know if he's still doing that with Roger or not. I would imagine so, but everything I've heard in interviews kind of alludes to the fact that he's doing it by himself, but I can't imagine that Roger's not involved. But either way, the music gets done, then the lyrics. And uh, through some interviews I've heard recently, since this album has come out, um, I have heard that Ian actually is a little bit more involved than I thought during the writing process, saying, can you leave a little more room here uh, in this part? If that's true, that makes a lot more sense to me, because it seems like with the way I thought that they did it, which was he just sits there and listens to what they do, and then they record, and then they go away, and then he goes, okay, now what am I going to do? You could really paint yourself into a corner of wanting to be able to do something lyrically that you just don't have the room to do because the band's gone. The the song's recorded. You get what you get. But if he has a little more uh, say during the process of saying, hey, I I like this idea. Can we extend that out another four bars? Because I'd like to add two lines in here. That, to me, makes much more sense. So I'll have to try and get that confirmed which way it goes, because the impression that I've gotten previously versus what I'm getting now are uh, are two different things, and and this makes a lot more sense to me. Um, just to to give a reference, so today I'm recording this on uh, August 9th, which is Sunday, so two days after the album has come out, and the Deep Purple Facebook page posted the iTunes album charts as of this morning. So this is just iTunes. This isn't Amazon. This isn't any of the physical CDs, any of the direct orders to their website. They've got a CD. They've got a CD-DVD combo, which has an hour-long interview with Roger Glover and Bob Ezrin, or conversation that was taped, I guess. I haven't received mine yet, so uh, I don't know fully what it encompasses, but uh, I did see that that was on there. 
And, uh, and then, of course, the album. Then there's other versions of it. There's the album, the actual LP, 12-inch vinyl record. Then there's a box set of records and uh, different colored vinyls and all these different configurations they have. So I ordered the CD, DVD, and T-shirt. And I'm currently waiting for that to arrive from England. Of course, with COVID, the shipping is slower. And uh, th- there would have been no reasonable way for them to ship it ahead of time so that the album would be here on the release date. And then some people would have it early. You'd be having people bootleg it. It would just be a mess. So I don't mind waiting uh, to get my copy. Plus, I ordered on iTunes anyway, so I already have the album. This will, I, I'm really just waiting for the packaging and the booklet and this DVD and T-shirt and all that. Um, but just to give you an idea, so two days after the album released, the iTunes album charts, this is just albums, not singles, not anything but iTunes. Number one in Brazil, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Luxembourg, no- Norway, Poland, Russia, Slovenia, which I don't think I've ever even heard of, and Sweden. Number one in all those countries, two days into the release. They are number two in Austria, Bolivia, Italy, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. Number three in Belgium, India, and Turkey. Number five in Ireland. Number eight in Australia and Hong Kong. Number nine in the Netherlands. Number 10 in Bulgaria, Spain, and Canada. And number 17 in the United States. This is on day two. Already topping the charts. Uh, they did great with Infinite, too. I didn't see all the numbers, but I know that that they uh, they really broke some barriers with that. And it's great because for any band to cut through in this day and age is difficult. And I'm glad to see that people are appreciating the music that this band is putting out now. Uh, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think Infinite is is one of the best albums I've ever heard. This album is absolutely fantastic. I've only heard it through once. So I haven't really formed opinions on a lot of the songs yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to the song and then I'm going to come back and talk about the, the points of the song. And, uh, and that's how we're going to do this today. But uh, it, it really is amazing to see that, first of all, music is ageless, absolutely ageless. If you can still physically perform and write and record that's all that you need to do. It doesn't matter that these guys are in their 70s. It doesn't matter what they did when they were in their 20s. You could do music anytime you can physically do music. And if you can't perform it, you write it for someone else to perform. There's there's no limits when it comes to what we can do. Now, I am limited personally in the way that I can't sing. So I cannot perform as a vocalist, but what would I do? Then I would hire a vocalist if I needed one. There are some older recordings that the vocal tracks are good and I'm able to use those on future productions that I, I'm doing of releasing those songs. But for the most part, I can't really record anything new or very limited new. So for what I can't sing, well, you find somebody who can. It's that simple. But these guys are still at the top of their game. I saw them in September of 2019 at the House of Blues here in Vegas. And it was one of the most energetic shows I've seen. And I've seen them on just about every tour since Perfect Strangers in 84. So a a lot has changed within the band, but the energy, the magic on stage, and the best part of seeing Deep Purple live is that you can tell that they're just loving what they're doing. You know, it's not, oh, God, we have to do this again, or, or uh, all right, well, let's get through this one. It is just every moment up there is pure joy, and you feel it. 
you see it in them, you see it in their movements, in their body structure, you see it on their faces, you feel it and you hear it in the music. It's an absolutely amazing experience. So when the world opens up and these guys start going on tour again, go see them because it's it's really unlike most things I've ever seen in my life. And and I've said before, I've had the pleasure of seeing Uriah Heep a couple times over the last couple of years, um, really for the first time, because I was never aware of any shows they were doing in the States. So I never went and saw them. And uh, now that I know that they're touring here is when, you know, again, when the world opens up, uh, definitely going to take advantage and go see it again. But just just take the guitarist, Mick Box, just Mick Box alone. You couldn't slap the smile off of that guy's face from the time he walks out on the stage to the time he leaves. They're just enjoying what they're doing. And even when they're singing songs that are like, you know, maybe a little more sad or gut-wrenching, uh, they're still just out there loving performing and loving uh, uh, entertaining their crowds, their fans, knowing that they're doing things that make people happy just by doing what they love. And that, to for me, is is the greatest gift to any artist, to be able to do something and have people uh, connect with it. That's That's not why we do it, but it's a great benefit of it. And one thing more that I'll say about Purple is that they've never consciously done something to specifically please people. They write what they feel, they write what they or they release what they think is good, and they hope that people latch onto it. And other than the record company going, hey, you need to write a single for this album, uh, which is how Black Knight uh, happened. But uh, that actually went very well. People really love that song and they do that in the show still. But they've never consciously said, we need to write something to please our fans. This is what we think they want. So this is what we're going to structure the song to be. It's never been like that. And you can hear it in their music because every song, while it's part of an album, is an individual song. And it doesn't fit a a formula or anything like that. I think the stuff they're writing now is great. It's some amazing transitions, very intricate parts. I love the stuff that they've done in the past. There isn't an album really that I don't like at least something or the majority of. But Infinite and and this album, Whoosh, uh, every song to me just, it just is it's fantastic. So we're going to get into the songs now, but uh, just a big, big thank you to everyone for listening to the show. Uh, for those that have donated to help me out, um, you know, obviously this is all out of pocket for me. You don't hear any corporate sponsors. So uh, everything is is kind of on me. So I appreciate everyone who's helped out, anyone who's given reviews uh, on your your uh, podcast listening device of choice, whether it be iTunes or Apple uh, Podcasts, which is really, if you're going to leave a review, that's the preferred uh, destination. But also, you know, you can currently hear the show on Google Play. Now, Google Play is going to be switching up their site or their format or something. I've just had to re-register the podcast with them to be able to be set up on that format. I don't know exactly when it's going to change, but my understanding is it's sometime this year. So for those of you that are listening on Google Play, please be aware of that. I don't have the new site yet. Uh, When I do, I will update the show notes with it. Uh, for any future shows starting on that new format. And for anybody that wants to listen on Google Play, uh, if you're listening to this, like, well, you probably found it. Um, iTunes and Apple Music is staying the same. Uh, most of the episodes have been able to go up on um, YouTube. There are a few of the back episodes that did not manually or did not automatically convert that I have to manually get up there. And the one with uh, my friend Travis that, that was banned because... Uh, we used part of a Billy Idol song. 
Yes, the auto detectors did that. So, uh, and I understand the auto detector algorithm is changing too. So, uh, you know, it's so tough to um, navigate these waters when you think you've got it figured out, then they're going to start changing formats, changing how things are done. And uh, it, it is a bit of a chore to keep up with it. Hopefully I'll be able to keep the show going on all the formats that it currently is. Uh, I know it's on Spotify. It's on uh, a bunch of different uh, podcast outlets. Podbean is my host. That's who I hired to do the distribution for the show. So you can always find the show on Podbean and uh, it's on uh, iTunes, like I said, and everywhere else. So thank you guys uh, for those. Please remember to leave a rating, a review. If you think it deserves a one star, give it a one star. If you think it's a five star, give it a five star. Uh, if you think it's a one star, give it a five star anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Be honest. That's that's the main thing for me. If you don't like the show, that's fine. If you have something constructive to say, uh, I'll always listen to those comments. If you're just going to be somebody that's just going to bash it for no reason. Um, I had somebody on on YouTube within 10 seconds of me uploading an episode, uh, put a comment on there that was a link to their dating site because they've got those spiders out there that as soon as things go on, uh, as soon as the spider catches it, it just puts a comment on. Um you know, that kind of stuff is really annoying, but we deal with it because we want to get the show out there and we want people to hear it and hopefully enjoy what we're doing, just like the musicians and uh, do as well. Uh, and I'm also a musician and an author. So with everything I put out, obviously, I hope that people will enjoy it. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about Deep Purple's 21st studio album, Whoosh, and the very first song on the album, Throw My Bones. Now, I do want to point out before I go any further that uh, I'm actually working on another project right now. So as I'm working on that on and off, I'm uh, doing a song review in between. So if the audio sounds a little bit different from song to song, uh, it's just because I've had to move around my setup to work on the other project. And, uh, you know, the mic doesn't go back exactly into the same spot and I don't face it exactly the same every time. So the audio may uh, vary slightly. Now, this song, Throw My Bones, I love the concept of this song. It's basically about the old uh, fortune tellers that would, uh, you know, kind of like the tea leaf readers where they can say, I can see your future based on how the tea leaves land on the cup. Um, just, just you know, total shoddy fortune telling, which, you know, no one can predict the future exactly anyway. So they would, uh, they would just take the bones of an animal and throw them down in the ground and say, oh, because this landed this way, this means that this is going to happen to you. And because the wing landed here, it means you're going to find love and all this crap. And, uh, you know, Ian's point on this is that he doesn't want to know the future. He just, you know, would would rather have the fun still be in finding out things as they unravel. Um, but it's basically about that concept. And then apparently they started painting the bones to make it more interesting. And then that eventually turned into dice. Uh, so uh, people would cast dice and, and things like that. Now they're still doing it with tarot cards and that sort of thing. There's literally nothing that can predict the future. Absolutely nothing. Unless... Time travel is real and you meet a time traveler and he tells you what happens, but then you might do something that would alter the course of the timeline and that doesn't happen, which would make him look like a liar, even though based on his timeline, he was telling the truth. So time travel is a whole nother podcast. I'd actually like to delve into that topic with somebody one of these days, but for now, we're talking about Throw My Bones. So right off the bat, you know, this kicks off the album with uh, just a good solid, this is going to be 
a good rock and roll album. I love the sound of it. I do find it interesting looking at the waveform of the file. I, you know, it's it's basically brick wall limited through the the bulk of it, except for the beginning and the end. Just almost a solid waveform, and um, I don't I don't know that I necessarily like that. I understand loudness metering, but personally, I don't know that that kind of pushes it. It doesn't distort. It doesn't sound bad. But I wonder what a mix would be like if it was more, uh, you know, mixed on the the strengths of where the music hits higher and where it doesn't. Um, I've Brickwall limited some of my stuff, and I tend not to like the way it sounds. But this sounds good. I just wonder if it would have sounded better had it not had that treatment applied to it. Um, But the song itself is fantastic. I love the chorus. I love the backing vocals. I think it sounds really strong. Uh, Steve's guitar work is fantastic. It's just a solid song. It's exactly what you would expect from Deep Purple to play. It sounds rich and full. Uh, the drums are are great. They're not overplayed. The fills are are very, very tasteful right where they should be. Nothing too crazy at all. Great transitions. That's one thing that that I have to say, too, for Purple is that their transitions, the last few albums, are just fantastic. They're not you know, just, okay, well, let's just do our two-note intro into the next section. They're actually really intricate transitions. And I love the way that they come out of the solo and go back into the verse. I think that's great. This is one of those songs, honestly, if it were three or four minutes longer, I would probably just fully enjoy every moment of it. And uh, it's it's a fun song. It's got an interesting concept. I love the the tones. I love the chords that they chose. Uh, it's really just a great song, and I, I can't say enough good things about it. I think it's a very powerful opener for the album. I think that was a great choice. And um, yeah, so on to the next one. Drop the weapon, kick you away. Drop your gun, the other way. Drop your weapon, live another day. Drop your blade, while I say. All right, before we get to Drop Your Weapon, there was one other thing I forgot to add about Throw My Bones, which is that the song fades out. And you don't hear a lot of Deep Purple songs fading out. In fact, uh, I remember John Lord saying one time that he felt that uh, doing a fade out on a song was cheating because you couldn't fade it out live. So if you couldn't come up with an ending, uh, you had a real problem. And so it's kind of weird now that I think about it to hear uh, a Deep Purple song fading out. There's probably been some that I... They haven't consciously made that connection to, but uh, yeah, certainly uh, that that stood out to me for Throw My Bones. But Drop the Weapon, uh, this is a good, straightforward rock and roll tune. Uh, it's got a, a great solo from Don Airy, really solid backing from the rest of the band, a uh, nice little spot where Ian Pace gets to shine a little bit, uh, really solid vocal from Ian. But you know, what's what's interesting too is that you can kind of hear the the background singers are female. And I remember uh, listening to a, an interview about that with uh, Don Airy, where apparently there was a song on Infinite that didn't get released that they had hired uh, some backup singers for because it gives a nice, you know, a nice full sound. If it's just Ian doing the backups, then it really just sounds like Ian being thicker or maybe harmonizing himself. But to add uh, some other studio singers can uh, be a nice twist on things. So uh, you could hear them. They're very well mixed in to where they don't stand out, but they definitely have a presence. So I thought that was, and it's Bob Ezrin, so it's going to be very well mixed. Um, yeah, but great song. I It's interesting, when I first heard it, and there were really three songs that I became very familiar with, which was Throw My Bones, 
um, Man Alive and, um, oh crap, I can't think of the other one. Nothing at all. Wow. I should have thought of that first. Uh, so those were the three songs that were released prior to the album coming out. And I was not going to listen to them. I thought I'd rather hear the entire album in context of itself, not have certain songs that I know better than other songs. But I had an opportunity to do a masterclass with Steve Morse over Zoom. Uh, there were 25 of us that uh, that got in. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be doing this class, I'm sure he's going to be talking about the new album, maybe playing a little bit from it, which he did. And so I was really glad I familiarized with those songs uh, previous to that meeting. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so now there's a new album, but there's songs that I know really well and songs that I don't know at all. And it's really, it feels a little unbalanced for me as a listener. But I'm probably the only person or maybe one of three people in the world that would feel that way. But in any case, I'm glad I listened to those other songs. So Drop the Weapon was a new song for me. And uh, it's interesting because as I first heard it, I thought, wow, this could have easily fit into Rapture of the Deep. There's something about the tonality of of, uh, Don's keyboard with Steve's guitar and the bass from Roger that I, I don't know if it's just the way it's blended together or the pitches that they chose, but something about this seems to say that I think that this would have fit well on Rapture of the Deep because it was a little more straightforward bluesy album, and this is a good blues rock tune. Um, but I like it. I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting sound, which I like. I haven't really got into the lyrics of too many of these songs yet, only because it, there's so much to pay attention to musically. Um, that as I listen to the songs a few more times, I'll start to get into the lyrics. So I can't comment too much on them right now, except for the three songs perhaps I'm a little more familiar with. But uh, but the, the vocals sound great. It's um, it's just a good, straightforward rock tune, and I, I, I give it a thumbs up. And next, we will be talking about We're All the Same in the Dark, which I don't know yet if that shares the context that it seems to. We'll find out. So just just upon listening to that opening, you can hear how rich and full the song is. I love Pacey's drums on this album, by the way. The the kick is is uh, big, but it's kind of punchy. It, it really just kind of smacks me in the chest a little bit. Uh, really, really like that sound that they got for this album. Um, Infinite was good. I think the kick was a little less punchy. So I personally prefer this sound, uh, but I liked what he had on that album too. Uh, this just, to me, kind of hits, uh, hits home a little bit more. Um, really interesting riff right off the bat. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely not, uh, it's kind of like a standard riff, but it just has a little bit more pizzazz to it. And, uh, you would think that after all the songs that have been written up to this point, that there would just be nothing new, nothing that you could find that's different from everything else. But I think that they're really good at finding those little intricacies that make, uh, riffs that could be simple, remain simple, but be more interesting. And I really like that, uh, just that that little da 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 da, just has like like a little bit of pizzazz to it. So I, I like that. Uh, vocals are really interesting. Uh, just upon listening again, I, I'm still not sure what it's about. It could be metaphorical because Ian is very good at at that. Um, but it certainly is interesting the con the, just the basic concept of the title. How uh, and, and I guess that's uh, kind of similar to a couple other things on the album. How much 
it applies to the world that we live in today. And you have to remember that they wrote this about a year ago or so, and it's it's been a while in the pipeline. Originally, it was supposed to be released in June. They pushed that back because of COVID, um, mainly because record stores weren't open and they didn't have, uh, you know, the postal all over the world to be able to get the album out. So they pushed it back a couple months to August. Um, but it's it's interesting because you look at the racial tensions and everything that are going on right now, and you think about a concept like we're all the same in the dark and how that could apply really to so many things that are happening. Um, I don't, I, I mean, obviously it wasn't the intention at the time because this wasn't happening when they wrote it, but it certainly is interested, interesting how... Um, how appropriate it is. Uh, one thing I found of interest uh, in here was just as it headed into the solo. And um, I think Steve's sound is really interesting on this solo. It kind of made me feel a little bit, uh, had had a little bit of Southern charm to it, maybe. I don't know if that's the right term, but that's what's coming to mind. But it, but Ian's vocals, they ended a line, what I felt was a line early. And I was kind of waiting for the next ending line to be there, not realizing he had already delivered it. So, um Certainly, it's it's all acceptable. However, you want to do it. I think I'm I'm kind of trained in that four four world where, uh, you know, everything uh, sort of completes itself on the fourth pass or the fourth line. And uh, he he took that away on this one, which I thought was kind of fun. Actually, um, it's nice to have things changed up a little bit here and there. Nothing wrong with it. It's I I wish I would think of more things to do like that to, um, you know, to keep things spicy and interesting. But I really liked it. Um, I love the sound. I love the tone of the song. Um, I love the little things that they throw in, uh, that the musicians throw in uh, in between lines. Just just those are the kind of things that that can make a song like this special, because for the most part, it's a pretty straightforward song. I love Ian's uh, harmonizing himself. I love his backing vocals, especially at the very end. Um, I think it's very powerful. I think he sounds fantastic. And, uh, you know, as I'm getting, I mean, all these songs, let's just go into the premise that I love this album and I, I love all the songs. There may be things that I say that I'm like, well, that's kind of weird, like him ending that line early. But I have a very, very positive attitude toward this album. And uh, I, I wanted to do this in a way before I knew the songs too well, because once you know the songs really well, a lot of those nuances you kind of hear without hearing you know they're there, you feel them, but you don't really pay attention to them. And when you're hearing songs for the first few times, you're a lot more attentive as a listener, I think. And so um, I, I wanted to do this before I got too familiar. So if I sound somewhat uneducated or um, descriptive, I think that's probably why. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to miss too much in the songs when I talked about them. So and, and Purple's really known for throwing in those little inflections all the time. Richie used to do that too, uh, in, in Rainbow and, and more so uh, recently, where it's, it's like he's just soloing all the time. And during the verses, there'll be little little licks that he does. And, and it's um, a different style of playing, but it definitely keeps the song moving forward. It's not, you're not just hearing the riff under vocals. You're hearing the riff, but with these little treasures that just pop up here and there, which I think is cool. I think it keeps the song moving. Um, because it is a, a fairly simple, straightforward song. So um, that is, uh, we're all the same in the dark. And now we move on to what is probably my favorite song on the album, Nothing At All.
So I chose to use a clip from the intro of the song instead of the chorus because just right off the bat, I love the tone of this song. Uh, the gentle muted picking, the chords of the keyboard, the, the octave of the bass, it just fits so beautifully together and creates a really interesting, intriguing mood, I think. And when I heard the song the first time, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the singles that they released. Uh, I just was right into it. I, I was locked on, ready to hear the rest of the song because that intro, it just just really fascinates me the way that it uh, it feels. It, it creates to me, and, and this might sound weird, it might not, I don't know, but it creates an autumn feel. Like I feel like the 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 ground has has uh, started filling up with uh, brown leaves, and there's just that crispness in the air that that comes with fall. Of course, we don't have any have too many changing leaves here in Las Vegas, but in other cities they do. And I grew up in Michigan, so I I very vividly remember what autumn's like. I remember the uh, the smell of the wet leaves. I remember the just the atmosphere in the air, the the grayer skies starting to form, feeling that transition that uh, we were heading out of summer and and uh, starting to head toward winter. And I love that, like right off the bat, that's what you're getting with this song. So it's going to make you feel or connect with whatever it's going to make you feel and connect with. But for me, that's that was the uh, the, the element right away. It just immediately brought me into that zone. So uh, but but just just those first couple of measures, just I just love the feel and sound. And then you move into this intricate guitar part and interplay with the keyboard, which is a, a, one of the, the hooks of the song to me is just this interplay right here. And it's so brilliantly played, so brilliantly felt out. And um, Steve played a little bit of this for us in the masterclass. And it was it was just amazing to watch him play it because it's it's almost blinding. It, it doesn't sound, it kind of sounds fast, but it doesn't sound ridiculously fast, like an Ingve Malmsteen kind of thing. But when you're watching him play it, you're like, I don't know how you're hitting all of that. I know you're really good, but I don't know how you're hitting all of that. It just seems like somewhere in there, you would just screw up something on every take. But he he nailed it. And watching him play it was uh, was a pretty amazing experience because no one's really seen that yet. Since they're not touring, um, they're not in videos, there's no um, video footage that's been released. Um, we were probably the first people outside of the the band and the people in the studio or people that were there at the rehearsals that are uh, privileged enough to have, have seen this intricacy performed. And it was it was quite a beautiful thing, I have to say. Then you got uh, Don Airy taking over on keyboard and uh, and just following up. It, it feels kind of like question, answer, question, answer uh, responses. And it's uh, it's just a really neat feeling thing. And then um, when you get to the chorus, the chorus is very powerful, great backing vocals. Everything just sounds really nice and thick. And and the whole thing uh, about it being nothing at all, the concept of it is the uh, there's a, an old lady and... Um, She's she's not one of my favorite people. Being that she's Mother Earth, she just goes and knocks all the leaves off the tree, which is kind of rude. But if you think about change of seasons again, now you've got that, uh, you know, autumn into winter kind of feel, which is really interesting because I had not heard the chorus previously before I heard that intro. So I'm already locked on to the seasonal transition and then we've got this, here's Mother Nature coming along and just going, okay, well, now uh, it was fall and now it's winter. And, and, and well, we're going from summer to fall to winter in the song, really. And um, I find it really fascinating that I had connected with the, the uh, seasonal element, considering that's where the song headed lyrically. Um, but it, it just kind of gives you this, you know, 
it's it's nothing. You can get upset about whatever you want. And in the end of the day, it's nothing because we're going to change seasons. We're going to do this. This is going to happen. We're going to have transition. And that's what I get out of the song. I haven't heard the full official um, description of the meaning of the song yet, but that is what... Um, that's what I get out of it. So it's uh, it's great. But but over the whole feeling of the song is great. Don's solo is is just phenomenal. It has such a great feel to it. Uh, the stuff that Steve does is amazing. Roger and Ian holding up the the rhythm section, just really just just giving them the foundation to do these. Uh, just kind of go off wherever they feel like going in the solos because it's really kind of it would it, you know it's structured because you know you're dealing with world class players. But at the same time, it kind of feels like it's just all over the place when it's really not. And uh, and I find that fascinating. I think Don said it was based on a Bach piece, but I can't remember now if this was the song he was talking about. Um, it was something for violin. I can't remember what it was now. Um, but uh, but yeah, the interplay is just such su- such beautifully crafted music. I, I don't know how you could come up with something for me that would top that kind of intricacy and still maintaining its its beauty because you could be an intricate player. You could play all these notes, you could play them really fast, but they don't have meaning. They don't have feeling to them if they're, if they're not in a context. And I think that they've, they've created that intricacy with while staying in that context and, and just really keeping it uh, wonderful. So this is definitely my favorite, if not uh, one of, if not my favorite songs on the album. But again, to be fair, I had this on the pre-release. So I know this song uh, better than than the rest of the album, you know. Um, so I, I have to wonder again, had I been able to hold off and just listen to the album straight through, had uh you know what my feeling would have been in the ranking on it but uh it it definitely is a song that really touches me um it just warms me up whenever it comes on and i hear it and just hear that opening tone uh i know i'm in for a good time i know i'm going to be listening to a great song and um well done guys All right, No Need to Shout is the fifth track on this new album, Whoosh. And man, this is another just powerful straight rock and roller that I really like. Again, I kind of felt like this could have been on Rapture of the Deep. And maybe it's just something about the piano. Maybe it's something about the tonality. But uh, I think it would have fit well on that album also. Um, I don't necessarily mean writing-wise, but but sound-wise for sure. Um, now, okay, be honest, when you, if you've listened to this song already, how do you not think that it's initially a remake of Perfect Strangers? Because it just has that, that straight, you know, keyboard chord has the same feel to it. Um, I was like, wow, are they, what are they, what the hell? And then of course it went into something else completely, which was a really nice surprise. I really like where they took the song again, starts out with just a great riff, a powerful drum beat, groove and bass line. Um, another classic song. And um, I hate using the word classic, but when you're comparing it to, I guess, comparing it to uh, songs by a band that's been around for half a century, it's kind of hard to to find another word to utilize because there is something about their sound that even when they change the writing, the sound of the song, you would know that it was Deep Purple just by listening to it, which is to me what makes it classic. Um, I love the piano solo. I love the guitar work on it. You know, Steve is really good at 
playing a riff and then playing these sort of muted notes in between to keep the rhythm going. I really like that. I think that helps the song just groove along. And when you've got somebody like Roger uh, backing it up, the the harmony with that bass line, um, or backing up the melody, I should say, with the bass line, it's just a recipe for magic. And um, I really liked his work, especially during the, the guitar solo, what Roger's doing in the background. It's got a great groove to it. I love Don's piano work. Um, <sighs> It's amazing watching that guy play because it, it it looks like he's just chopping away at the keyboard and it looks like he doesn't, you know, he's not really going for anything. But when you hear what he's doing, it's it's amazing. Like you can't argue with the visual technique at all when you hear what the output is because it, it, it really is just such a stunning and tasteful and, and feeling a player. Um, really, really dig this song. Um, I love the drum part at the end too. It's uh, it's it's a nice little way to end a song. You don't hear that a lot, and uh, so the the as the guitars fade out uh, with the chord, and it's not a fade out song, but you know when the song's ended, but the guitars are carrying on. Um, there's this nice little thing that Ian Pace does, which I really like. Uh, just kind of ties the song up well and, and says, "Okay, that was that song. I'm I'm ready to move on to the next." But it's definitely a great rock and roll tune, and uh, I would highly recommend listening to it. Step. So now we get to okay, that was really crappy. I realize. What a what an amazing intro that is! First of all, uh, great work by Don Airy to create this sort of moody, um, almost you feel like you're going into a '50s horror movie. And of course, it brings me back to the song Vincent Price, which uh, which they did a couple of albums ago with Bob Ezrin, and uh, this seems almost like a continuation of that. The just the the mood of it, that sort of um, horror movie keyboard from the old B movie days. Uh, really like it though. It's it's uh, it's definitely setting a tone for for the uh, song, and of course the vocal delay. I really like that. I think it works well in the song. Effects can really be overkill sometimes. They can ruin the quality of a vocal track. They can uh, be distracting. But here, I think they were done very, very tastefully. I think if it had been any bigger, had delayed one more time, it would have been too much. But I thought they did something really, really nice in creating that atmosphere. And again, it just furthers that sort of um, disjointed feel that you get when you're listening to music that would fit into a horror movie. And uh, that sort of uh, the voice almost feels disembodied when you hear those those fading delays. And I think that they made a really good choice for that. I also love the backups on this, the backing vocals. They could be uh, done by Don Airy, but I think those are actual singers. I'm not sure. I don't have any documentation or anything to validate my argument one way or the other. But I would say most likely they're backup singers. Uh, but either way, it's a very nice touch. It's, it's very gentle and delicate. And just enhances. It doesn't overshadow. It doesn't overtake. It doesn't um, really make a standout appearance. It just enhances, which uh, which is something that when you're working with music like this, it's very careful how you it, you have to be very careful how you layer it. If you make anything too loud, anything too quiet, it doesn't work. It has to sit right perfectly where it needs to sit. And I think they found that sweet spot for uh, for those vocals or that uh, keyboard. Um, I also like that it's a waltz. 
Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for rock bands to do a three, four time signature from time to time. But a lot of times you do it and you don't really realize it. Like Bananas, the song Bananas, I think was in seven and um, kind of throws things off a little bit. Um, I want to say, I can't remember now. Uh, I know there were a couple other songs that that um, I had connected to this, but I can't think of what they are at the moment. But uh, But a waltz is always nice. In fact, a little bit of movie trivia. All the battle scenes in the movie Gladiator are waltzes. And when you think waltz, you think traditional, you know, old people dancing very slow, um, you know, just a boom, tap, tap, boom, tap, tap, kind of, like, you know, country maybe. Uh, no, not at all. It's it's basically just uh, that, uh, you know, anything that's in a three, four time signature can be considered a waltz. This is definitely a waltz. Um, but very, very tastefully done. You just assume with most rock songs, they're going to be in four instead of three. And so it's nice when uh, when you have the time signature changed up a little bit. They've done that uh, here and there since Steve Morris joined the band. And I think it's really enhanced the music quite a bit. The music before was good, but it, pretty much everything was a straightforward uh, four, four song. So it's, it's nice to have a little variety in there, I have to say. Um, I think they could have brought the guitar up in the mix a little bit. It seems a little bit buried, so I can't tell uh, quite as well what Steve's doing. Uh, but what I hear, I like. Um, the best part of this song, to me, is Don Airy's solo in this. It is just like notes are skittering around. Like lights, a bright light has come on in the room and the rats are just trying to find a place to hide. It's just all over the place. And what an interesting sound that he found to make this happen. It's, it sounds kind of like it might be the Hammond, um, but it could be something else, uh, but a very interesting sound and, and, and beautifully played. Um, it, it just it skitters up and down the board. And, and I, I really like that. Um, I like the ending uh, again, another fade, which is uh, sort of surprising, um, but it works for this kind of song. There's, there's some songs and I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this well, but there are some songs that are kind of like, a party, a musical party. And it just it's just grooving and you kind of want it to go on and on and on. If I could give you a visual reference, if you've seen the movie um, Carlito's Way, I know how random is this that I'm talking about an Al Pacino movie, but if you've seen the movie and you've seen the end of the movie, the sunset with the dancing and the drummer's that is like a party that you want to go on well after the sun has gone down. You just you just want it to go on and on and on until everyone passes out. And that's kind of how I feel with this ending. The drums are a little bit upbeat for the mood of it. And it just I just want it to keep going. It fades out kind of early for me, for my taste. But I've I've said this before, Birds of Prey from Infinite being one of my favorite songs, that song could have been 10 minutes longer because it had that same sort of musical party atmosphere. And I'm not talking about party like let's get kegs and, you know, let's just be stupid. I just just a, a thing that you want to be involved in as long as it can last. And uh, Birds of Prey went a little bit longer than this did, which was great. But uh, I, I definitely felt that this song could have gone a little bit longer and it would have worked really, really well. Last 
What the What Happened to You Last Night. I love this song. What a fun rock and roll tune. Really has a feeling of, I want to say it's the 50s era rock and roll. Um, obviously, you know, a little more modern in the sound. You get the Hammond behind the piano, but just that, you know, ding, 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 ding choppy piano that, that Don's playing and uh, some great guitar work. It's uh, it's a really, really just fun driving tune. It's kind of like the one that you would expect people to dance to at a party. It just has a, it has a great feeling about it. And it's obviously telling the story about something crazy that happened. Um, I'll have to dig into the lyrics a little more as time goes on and I get used to it. But there's so much musically going on in this song. Uh, it's hard to know where to where to put your focus. So it's one that I think you just have to listen to a bunch of times. I'm going to focus on the guitar on a couple listens, on the keyboards on a couple listens, on the piano on a couple listens, and so on. Um, but it's a really, really cool, um, really, really cool song. It's it's very patient, too, I think, during the solo section. Instead of the piano trying to rush those uh, staccato notes to, to move the song forward. It's just kind of following and saying, I'll play along as long as you want. It's not rushing to get anywhere, but it moves at the same time. It's a really interesting combination. Um, definitely, definitely love it. Um, I, I really love the transitions too, going from one part to another. And I said earlier, I think that this is uh, something that Purple's really great at. Probably one of the best I've ever seen for for bands because most of them just move from one part into another or do like a, a one measure transition. But these guys are just like, let's just make it interesting to get it from point A to point B. And uh, that's something that I really want to work on in my music, too. Not so much the mental sauna stuff, but, uh, you know, or the horror stuff. But if I'm writing, you know, a, a straightforward song like a, a rock and roll or a pop piece, I really want to start building up my transitions more. This is really inspiring me to to work on that because it's it's something that um, I feel can really enhance the song. And if you don't think so, just listen to this song again, because it, it will definitely show you that it's uh, it's the way to go. But uh, very, very cool. I like the vocal doubler on it, too. It's uh, it's a little off-putting at first to me until until you get used to it. But I like the sound of it. I think it really adds to, like I said, I think it's the, the 50s, um, maybe that sort of 50s. I want to say rockabilly. But when I think rockabilly, I think like the Stray Cats. And this doesn't really seem like a Stray Cat song, at least the stuff that I know, which I will hi- highly admit my Stray Cats knowledge is minimal. <laughs> It it isn't uh, the stuff that I've heard from them. Like I like it, but it's just not my not my genre. So I really haven't paid much attention. So I haven't done a deep dive or a dive at all into those guys. Um, so it may it may be rockabilly, um, but uh, it, it definitely has like a sort of fifties. I want to say fifties diner. I don't know. I don't know exactly what words I'm going for, but it has a a, um, a certain retro feel. I'll just say that. And when I say retro, I don't mean the 80s. Everybody seems to think that retro means the 80s nowadays. Um, As far as I'm concerned, it's still the 80s. It would make life a lot easier. Um, Just a really long decade. So, uh, yeah, another thumbs up. I I give this one. I I love Rogers uh, grooving on this. And, uh, again, great ending. So uh, another thumbs up for me on this album that I've already given a thumbs up to. Good. 
Good Lord, what a kick-ass song. A great groove. Right off the bat, you're just put into this zone, you're locked into the tempo, and you're going for a ride. Uh, Great work. Uh, Another just really, uh, you know, it's not surprising that they come up with these kind of grooves, but it's just great to hear um, how consistent, how solid, how easily I just uh, connect with them. And, uh, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I have no idea, but I know that I do. And uh, hopefully this will help you too as well. So um, first of all, yeah, great groove. I love, uh, again, Ian's voice just sounds so good on this song. Um, So natural. Um, There is a little bit of that uh, delay on the voice again, which I'm not sure if I like. I'm sure I'll grow to like that. But it seems to me like that's to me one of those things where if I use that on an album, it's pretty much going to be on one song in one part not something that I'm going to be replicating in other places on the album, unless there's a very good reason to. I'm not really sure this warranted that, but that's just me. Um, but I, but I definitely love the sound of his voice. He just sounds fantastic. Um, Don Airy's synth solo on this is uh, is just amazing. You really feel like you've been taken on a journey within the journey just listening to that solo, and that's really what to me. Uh, a solo should be. It should be a journey within the journey. And uh, and he just does a great job taking us all over on this one. Um, really love it. And then coming into Steve's solo, um, I really love the vocals too that they put in a, a Vian's over Steve's solo. Uh, very technically pr- uh, profound solo that Steve did. I love it. Just, uh, you know, you feel like he's not being sloppy. He's just being so precise and uh, and it's got a really good feel to it as well. Um Really like that. I loved the reference that Ian makes to the song Trashed from the Born Again album that he did with Black Sabbath. And also uh, he remade that particular song on his Gillen's Inn album. Um, really, really good reference there. Unexpected, but uh, but comedic. It was nice. And uh, I think that those of us that have made that promise, to be fair, have made that promise more times than we care to admit that we've made that promise, but we have, and we'll probably continue to make it from time to time. Um, I'm not a heavy drinker myself. I very rarely drink anymore at all, which makes me the cheapest date in Vegas because I pretty much have uh, almost no alcohol tolerance whatsoever. Um, I don't have anything against drinking. I think it's fine. Um, we have a huge industry for that here, obviously. But uh, for me, I work all the time and I don't like to drink when I work because that means that I will not work as well or efficient and I'll probably just have to go back and do it over again anyway. So I, I might as well just stay sober and and do my work and then have a, an occasional drink here and there. But uh, any more than two and uh, you could probably manipulate me like a marionette. Um, don't do that, though. Um <laughs> So I, I love the the ending passage that just goes into this wonderful uh, music bed that uh, Don has created with Steve putting in some inflections here and there. Uh, it has just a really good feel to it. There's a nice little splash in there that uh, Ian Pace plays, and I can't recall of the countless hours I have listened to Ian Pace play. I know he has a splash on his kit, but I can't remember a time I've ever actually heard him strike it. And it sounds like he struck it in this uh, song. So that was kind of a nice little treat. Um, unexpected. I like that. But it's it's just got this beautiful, uh, you know, luxurious, heavenly sort of ending to the song, which is a nice unexpected thing when you start off with a groove like this does. Uh, there was a song called 
Silver Tongue, and it was off the Bananas album. And I really like that same sort of groove that it started out with the da 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 And just that really stayed solid through the majority of the song. And the song ended that way, oddly with a fade out now that I'm thinking about it. Maybe there's more fade outs than I remember, at least in the more recent albums. Um, but it, it has that same sort of solid groove that you just lock onto right away. You're there for the ride, uh, like this one started out with. But this one has a really nice unexpected ending. Um, really did not see that coming. And uh, a very nice way to end a, a very great song. And so now, uh, wow, where are we at? We're on to Power of the Moon. And Power of the Moon, I heard Don say in an interview that this one was a little bit challenging to record. Um, he wasn't quite getting uh, with with Bob Ezrin, I guess, on this one, the sound of the, the synths and things that he was trying to use. So uh, it's interesting when you hear some of the backstories of the trials and tribulations. You know, not everybody's going to agree on everything. Not everyone's going to understand the idea that everyone else is trying to convey. So even, you know, even guys that have been at it this long, 21 albums in, although be it through different lineups of the band, um, there's still going to be those those issues that that people have, and uh, that can cause songs to be challenging. But in the end, uh, personally, I think that the song came out great. And so here is a little bit of Power of the Moon. All right, track nine, Power of the Moon. Now, title-wise, this is something I would have expected to show up on, say, a Blackmore's Night album or maybe a Dio album. So it's kind of uh, intriguing to have something sounding so mystical on a Deep Purple album. But this is the song, and it starts out with this very intriguing little part um, with uh, piano and guitar with a really nice, if you listen uh, through headphones especially, there's a sort of ominous synth in the background that Don plays through the opening and uh, I think it really adds a, another level of depth to that. But uh, yeah, it starts off kind of like um, the other song that I said that had uh, sort of an ominous feel to it. Um, I think it was Step by Step. And uh, it, it's just kind of an intriguing, I feel like something is about to happen, maybe something that's not good. And uh, I like that. I like being kind of drawn into, you know, what's going on here. With a typical typical rock and roll song, it starts off with a great riff, powerful drums, uh, that sort of thing. And then you have your vocal come in and tells you the story. But this is something that really just kind of is a little bit uh, mystifying. And you want to know what's going on. You want to know if you should feel safe, if you should worry. Um, so I, I, I like that. Uh, just right off the get-go. Um, but it's, a, but it's a, a great start to a song. Um, the vocals on the song remind me of uh, another Deep Purple song, this one from uh, The Battle Rages On, called Solitaire. And that's another one that has a really cool feeling to it. Um, kind of a, a bit of loneliness, but also a bit of it's going to be okay, but a bit of maybe it isn't. Uh, something that just really keeps you kind of on the edge. And I like that. You don't really expect that kind of music from a rock band, but uh, Deep Purple is definitely delivering some very interesting sounds on this album. It's a very eclectic album. And uh, you just don't know what you're going to get from song to song, which makes it interesting. After, you know, it's great to have a rock album that's all rock and 
you just go from one song to the next, but it's nice to have something that's really such a variety. Um, it, it almost reminds me more of a film soundtrack because in a film soundtrack, you've got all these different cuts of music. You have the opening, you have the songs that set up scenes, you have the themes that, that you'll hear again, but you've also got all this other incidental music that really breaks up the the pace of the film. You've got music that you hear in the car, music you hear in a restaurant or a bar, uh, music that might just be for one character or for one scene. Um, all this different stuff that comes together, um, but you but you also have the overall score. So this is really nice to have stuff that's just really different from one song to another. I think it makes for a very interesting overall album. Um, really like the staccato guitar and piano. I think that, that uh, like I said, adds a, a nice layer of intrigue. Uh, Ian Gillen's vocals are so strong on this. I think it's one of the best songs for vocals on this one. He just sounds so, uh, so good on this one. I, he sounds good on all of them, but this one in particular, uh, really, really nice stuff. I love uh, the the Hammond solo is really good in this. And it's it's just another one that just kind of carries you. You're intrigued from the time it starts. You want to know where it's going. You want to understand what's going on. And it does not disappoint uh, through the ending fade. That's right. Another song that fades. <laughs> it just seems so weird to me. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, this song faded and that song faded. Solitaire faded. Perfect Strangers faded. <laughs> So now I'm starting to question my own memory of John Lord's uh, phrase there. I do remember him saying that. I know he said that, uh, but maybe the band did fade some songs, uh, more songs than I realized percentage wise. Uh, But anyway, um, yeah, Woman from Tokyo. I know that fades too. I just realized that. Um, But a great, another great song. And and it just, it moves the album. And and so far, I mean, we've been through now uh, nine of the 13 songs and I have to say the order of the songs is really good, too. They really flow well from one to another, which is really tough to do when you have such an eclectic mix of songs. If all of your songs are rock songs or country songs or classical songs, then it really comes down to does the tempo of the song and the ending of the song go well before the tempo and the beginning of the next song? And just kind of finding the best format for those songs. At least that's the way I do it. I'd love to know how guys like Bob Ezrin sit down and decide the order of things or Bob and Roger or whoever was involved in that decision-making process. I'd really like to know what their their thought process is behind that. I only know how I do it, how a couple of my friends do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to find that out. So if I get a chance to interview anyone, I'll have to remember to ask that question. And uh, yes, I, I have reached out. They did a, uh, they did a, a thing. Uh, they sent me a notice that there was a quiz. And you take the quiz. I got nine out of 11 right. It said I was like a master or professional or whatever it was. And uh, then you go into a, a pool to get some sort of like a badge and uh, be one of like so many people to interview the band. You have to submit questions and all that. So I did all that. And then, uh, and I felt kind of special about it because they sent it to me and I had, um, I've already applied to uh, interview the band or members of the band, however it it winds up. And uh, I've been pushed past the first round now, waiting to hear on the second round. So I am hopeful that that someone will come on the show, if not everyone. 
Um, so I thought that I was getting this invite as a part of, of that experience because it was just a few days after I had submitted. And then uh, not so much. I went on Facebook, I went on Instagram, and I found that they had the link to that uh, very same thing there. So uh, obviously, I reached out. You never know what avenue is going to work. So I reached out to the band through that. I've reached out to the band through their uh, promotional channel as well. And we'll see what happens. I'm I'm hopeful uh, that's all I can be at this point until I hear something back. I'll just uh, continue to hope that one of them will be interested in coming on the show, or maybe they all will. Uh, maybe two of them will. Who knows? But I have questions for them, and uh, I, I would love to talk to to any of them, but we'll see. Um, so that uh, that wraps up Power of the Moon, even though I went off kind of into a, a random direction. And next, we're going to go into Remission Possible. And I've only heard this song once so far, so um, I'll be interested to see what the lyrical content is because I, I didn't really catch it the first time. And uh, I, I'm thinking just based on the title now of the the cover, you've got the astronaut. I know that he was featured in the Man Alive video, uh, which is the song after that we're going to talk about. But uh, Remission Possible, like you think mission, you think space. Deep Purple has had a history with with space. Obviously, Space Truckin' was a hugely popular hit uh, from the Machine Head album. They would play it live. That's uh, That song would go on for 20 to 30 minutes. There's a wonderful version of it on Made in Japan and uh, a couple of other bootlegs that I've heard and some other live stuff. Um they they had that and then they were uh they were friends with some of the astronauts from the Challenger mission that unfortunately um they uh did not work out very well. They wrote Contact Lost on the Bananas album because that happened actually during the sessions of them recording Bananas and um tough time for them for sure. And uh then they had that and then obviously this with uh, with Woosh with the spaceman um, theme. I I told the guys, my friends Nate and John over at the Deep Purple Podcast, that I really hope that under the cover is revealed that it's Rod Evans. I think that would be the ultimate full circle uh, for Deep Purple. For those of you who don't know, Rod Evans was the original singer of the band. He had played uh, in a band with uh, Ian Pace called M15, and then they changed it to The Maze. They kept changing their name so that they could keep playing the club circuit. And uh, if they were, they stayed the same band, then they wouldn't be allowed in until everybody played. So they just kept changing their name and reentering and changing up the songs a little bit. Um, but Rod was the first singer. He sang on Hush, which is probably the, the most noteworthy thing. He did the first three albums that were on the Tetragrammaton label. And um, n- no one's seen him or heard from him in some time. The last we heard, he's in the medical profession now uh, doing well, but there's been a lot of controversy with things he was involved with over the years, the reformation of a a, a non-sanctioned Deep Purple, which there was a horrible lawsuit over. I really think personally that he was kind of the scapegoat, that he was set up from the beginning to be the scapegoat for it, and the people that were really in charge of it really kind of got away. And uh, and it's a shame. Uh as I understand it, Rod had to uh, sign away all his rights to anything Deep Purple. So unless the van- the band themselves invited him to do something, I don't think that he has the ability to do much of anything uh, as far as the band goes. But I don't know all the legalities, all the ins and outs. This is just what I'm surmising based on the research I've done and what I've heard. Uh, very sad, uh, sad case, because if, if you think about the impact that Hush had, not just for Deep Purple, but for that style of music at the time. It was a, a pretty popular song, you know, and uh, I still love it. I think that's a, a great solo work by John Lord, great groove by uh, Ian Pace, and some really cool little, uh, I think I think 
even with the way that they were played, I think they would still be called Trills by Richie Blackmore. Um, but but a, a great song, uh, certainly something that, that changed the game at that point and was a huge uh, part of the initial success of Deep Purple. Um, but my hope is that at some point, someone will pull back the visor on the helmet and reveal that it is Rod Evans. That would be like the ultimate full circle thing. And we'll get back to that in a couple of songs. But for now, uh, let's get into Remission Possible. Oh, I know why I started talking about this, because uh, it seems like Mission Space seems like it would be be related to the, the uh, cover of the theme or the theme of the cover, I should say. Obviously, I've been talking for a while and um, in between getting my other project done. But uh, I, I think that would be really cool. I, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but uh, that would be kind of neat as well. So anyway, let's get into Remission Possible. Well, it makes me feel to remember why I couldn't remember what the lyrics were, what the story was, because there are none. This is uh, it really a prelude to uh, Man Alive. It, it leads into the show, uh, the, to the show, the song Man Alive. And um, it, it's just a short song that uh, that really sets it up. But it's a really kind of a powerful little thing. And uh, I, I love the the feel of it going in. It's kind of intriguing. And then it just goes into full on driving. We're moving towards something feel to it. And uh, very well done. The, this, the work by uh, Aria and Morse on this one just gets more intense as the song goes on until it uh, kind of dies down to get ready to move into Man Alive. Um, really cool little tune. And uh, I highly recommend listening to it. I I kind of almost think it could have been one song, but I see why they made it separate songs. Um, it probably works better that way, but but really it could have been just one thing as it does blend in together. It's always one of those interesting production issues. Do you call it something else? Do you just make that an extension of the original song, cut that off in the single release so that people buy the album version or make the album version longer, cut down the single for radio play? Um, I don't really know how much they actually think about those kind of things because I heard uh, one of the interviews saying something about um, Bob, when, when they first met up with Bob Ezrin, they they discussed in the meeting, like, don't worry about singles, don't worry about radio, don't worry about anything, just go make music. That should be what we're doing is making the best music that we can make. And I agree with that. Uh, for For some things though there's somebody at some level that has to think about that because somebody had to decide to release man alive and not release remission possible as part of it somebody had to decide to release throw my bones and not uh drop the weapon somebody has to make those decisions so i don't know if that's done i would imagine by the record company uh, I don't know how much say so the band has in decisions like that or if they care, if they're like, you know, we make the music, you guys do the corporate stuff. Uh, that could be with uh, with working with a producer that might be more on Bob Ezrin. I'm really not sure, to be honest, but uh, I do know that somebody made this decision to make it a separate song. Uh, if you're listening to it, it just kind of blends in. So um, you really wouldn't know where one starts and one doesn't. Since they released Man of Man Alive, starting where it did, 
I I'm more familiar with that song, so I know kind of where Remission Possible stops because I know where Man Alive starts. And uh, speaking of Man Alive, let's talk about it. You know, I think uh, Man Alive is just this wonderful flowing song. It's very patient, has a lot of subtleties in it. Um, it's a lot to listen to on on the first couple of listens. I think you really have to listen to it a few times to fully get the gist of what this song has going on. Um, it, I love the uh, vocal doubling that uh, we hear from Ian Gillen. I think it really makes um, it for... It's just an intriguing way to do things from time to time, especially when you're telling a story um, a little bit different than the rest of the album. Very cool. I love the spoken words uh, parts. He uh, he did that on the last album in a, a song. I think it was called Up on the Roof, I want to say. Um, I'm not that great with titles anymore. I used to know everything, the record number, the release, what company did what, the order of the songs, how long they were. Um, what live versions are like, I used to know all of that stuff. And as the years have gone by, I've forgotten most of it. So even the titles anymore, because I find um, I'm mostly listening while I'm doing other things. So I very rarely just sit down, really look at an album, really listen to it. And I think that really started with the advent of, of compact discs. When the covers got too small, the lettering got too small in the books, it just became too difficult and uncomfortable to try and, and flesh through all of it. So I think that's when I really started to die down for me was uh, was when we stopped listening to LPs, that beautiful picture in, in a, on a 12-inch record, um, whether it be on the disc itself, the picture disc, or uh, you know on the album cover where you could really appreciate the detail that the artist put into it. Um, it just changed so much. It just became too small. And, and I get the concept of it. But at the same point, I think there were some things that got hurt along the way. So uh, I apologize if it's not up on the roof. I'm pretty sure it is or, or something similar to that. Um, yeah, but he had a spoken word part in that that uh, that I really liked. I didn't I didn't care for the way it was mixed. I thought it was too quiet myself because I found that I had to turn the volume up to be able to listen to it properly and then hurry up and turn it back down before the music kicked back in so it wasn't too loud. But this is actually blended fairly nicely. Um, And I'll tell you, I think, honestly, I know he narrated something. I think it was like a biography on someone famous. I don't remember. I I know I never heard it. But he could he could have been an audiobook narrator very easily. Uh, the best audiobook I've ever heard narrated was um, it was called The Alchemist. And the version that I heard was narrated by Jeremy Irons. And I thought, man, this guy could read the phone book and people would sit there and listen to it for hours. Uh, Ian's another one of those. I think he's great at spoken word. And um, I like that it kind of appears a couple times in the song. Um, I also like the, the the sort of metronome sound that they set behind him. I don't know if they used a metronome or if they used like moon blocks, which would be fitting with the whole space thing, uh, or if it was something that Don did or programmed or whatever. I don't know how they arrived at that. But uh, but I kind of look at it because the song really is kind of about the heartbeat of the earth, I think. And um, I like that uh, they talk about the earth cleansing itself and... Um, 
you know, bad things being washed away. And I kind of look at this metronome sound as the heartbeat of the earth in this song. But it's a great song. It it moves very well. It's a little slower, but not boring uh, in, in any way. I think it's a very interesting song. It starts out kind of optimistic with, you know, these light strings, these these light uh, vocal bits by Ian and um, just really nice, a really nice song. So uh, I'm really glad that they recorded it. And um we're uh, we're getting near the end here, so that was track eleven. There's only two more to go, and here is where we tie in my spaceman theory, because they did a cover of the very first song that Deep Purple ever recorded, which although he wasn't on it, would have been uh, during the Rod Evans era, and this is called "And the Address." And this song was the first song on the very first Deep Purple album, Shades of Deep Purple. I don't know if it's actually the first song they physically recorded or not, but it's the first song that appeared on a Deep Purple album. So this was the introduction of Deep Purple to the world, and they decided to redo it for this album. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk, even within the interviews I've heard, about this very likely being the very last Deep Purple album. Um, that being the case, it seems like they should have put it last and and had it, you know, kind of sandwiched all the other songs in between a sandwich of and the address. But uh, there is one song after it called Dancing in My Sleep on this album. Uh, but I, I was very interested uh, when I saw the track list come out some time ago for this album. This track and the address was the one that uh, raised my eyebrow the most because I, w- I really was trying to envision how it would sound with the current lineup and the things that they the style that they have now. And so uh, I didn't, when when the album came out and I got my iTunes download, I did not just jump in and listen to it. I actually did listen to the album in order, as tempted as I was to put on Andy Address first. But it's always been a favorite of mine. Um, it, the sound of the band was so different back in 1968 when they recorded it. But uh, the, the song itself has always been a favorite. It, it features everyone. It features the drums. It features guitar. It features keyboards. Bass is rocking it. Uh, it features everybody but the vocalist. And uh, that's kind of an interesting thing, because during the years that Ian Gillen has been in the band, while Deep Purple has done instrumentals throughout other incarnations of the band, there's been very few. Um, The first one is kind of arguable, whether it's an instrumental or not, and that would be Son of Alaric, which was recorded during the Perfect Strangers uh, sessions. Um, it was released on an extended edition of Perfect Strangers. That's how I first heard it. And I think it came out on, or maybe it came out on an EP first. I think it was an EP first, like a three song EP. Uh, and then when the album was initially sort of remastered by the record company, it, they had included, um, it wasn't the official like 25th anniversary releases like Roger was doing, but um, Son of Alaric came out on that as well. Or maybe it was, no, I think it was not responsible. Did I'm not sure now. Wow. See, this is what I mean. Like, my memory is not what it used to be. I know I had the song on an LP of some sort. I'm pretty sure it was an EP LP, and I don't remember what else was on it. It might have been, like, um, Perfect Strangers Live. I think it was, like, Knocking at Your Back Door, Perfect Strangers Live and Son of Alaric or something. I can't remember. But I fell in love with the song right away. It's a very long song. For a studio song, it's it's uh, very long. And, and there's only one part where you hear any voice, and it's at the very end. It sounds like Ian Gillen stepped on a nail, and he makes this kind of ah sound. Um, but that's it. That's the only vocal that's in it. So do, is that enough to qualify it to not be an instrumental? Is it still an instrumental? If so, that's the first one I can recall uh, of any uh, 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 anything that Ian Gillen was on being an instrumental. And then you move to um, Bananas, 
And I believe Contact Lost would be the next. And that was, you know, the one that I said was written for the their friends that were on the, the Space Shuttle Challenger. And, uh, and then we have, I guess, Remission Possible, even though it's kind of a prelude to Man Alive, it really is an instrumental because within the context of that song, there's no vocals, no dialogue. And then And the Address was always an instrumental. And it does remain an instrumental on this album. It would have been interesting if they would have put lyrics to it. But so those are throughout all of the Ian Gillen era years. Those are the only instrumentals that I can think of. If anybody thinks of, of any others that I'm not remembering, uh, shoot me an email, scott at scotthaskin.com and let me know where I messed up. Um, I'm pretty sure that's it, though, which is really interesting. But then when you've got, you know, it's, it's so weird because you've got such musicianship within you know the four guys to not do an instrumental kind of seems like a waste but then when you've got such an amazing singer as ian gillen why would you take up album space doing an instrumental there is one more ah there is okay um it was one that that steve wrote and i think it was don had to learn it very quickly but it is the well-dressed guitar now, that did not appear on an album. I think that was on the bonus tracks of the gold version of Rapture of the Deep. I think so. But I first actually heard the song live when I saw them play with uh, Dio and the Scorpions, and they headlined the show. That was, I believe, the first time I heard Well-Dressed Guitar. Uh, blistering guitar riff. Very, very cool song. Um, a lot of work on keyboards, too. Um, but, it, but it has a great groove to it. But anyway, so those those would be all the instrumentals that I can think of during any Ian Gillen time that were official like album releases or even as bonus tracks. But if I'm wrong, if you've got something else, write me and let me know because uh, as, as knowledgeable as I think I am about the band and I've been proven so often that I'm not. Thanks again, uh, John and Nate at the Deep Purple podcast for showing me how much I don't know about this band that I've spent a good majority of my life with. Um, but yeah, if you guys have something, shoot an email over to me and let me know. And in the meantime, let's check out and the address, the new version by the current incarnation of Deep Purple. It's it's right out of the gate. It's just very, very powerful. Sounds great. Um, great new updated version of the song. Um, missing the long keyboard intro that uh, came with the original. And I, I always thought that might be a little bit too long. And there was a, another uh, intro that, that uh, hit with all the musicians right before this particular version starts. So they cut in uh, a, a little bit into the original version and started from there. But the soloing's great. The groove is great. Um, Pacey sounds a, a lot more alive in this song than some of the other stuff where it, where it seems like it's not like he's holding back, but he's playing um, a little more straightforward. And this one, he kind of lets loose a little bit more. I think in the original song um, was very wild. You know, when, when you listen to that, it's, it's drum fills all over the place, not out of context by any means. They sound great. They're not over the top, but it's, it's very rich in uh, heavy, heavy drum activity uh, amidst the guitar solos and the keyboard solos. So this is kind of a nice, um, a, a nice version of it where, you know, everybody gets to shine a little bit and uh, keep the song moving forward. But I, I was really impressed with it. it. I was 
when when it was about to come on, I'm like, oh, please let me like this. And I really do. Um, I wish it was longer. I, I wish that there was uh, a little more to it only because I enjoyed it so much. And that really becomes the challenge with a lot of this stuff. Like I was saying about the quote unquote party songs earlier, the musical party songs, um, you you just don't want it to end. And, and the address is always a song that I've just... You know, when when the end is coming and you feel it, it's it's like, no, just give me just give me one more round of solos. Give me one more. You know, what would be a verse if this was a vocal song? Um, but that's that's really, to me, the the beauty and craftsmanship of a, of a great song. If I want more of it when it's over, then it was well written. If I am good, like, OK, that was a decent song. And uh, what's next? Then that's the sign of a you know a decent, good song. But uh, the ones that you want to hear again as soon as they're over or the ones that you wish were longer and you want more of, those are the ones that really, they stick with you, you know, and they're they're ones that you'll go back to and listen to over and over again because they've connected with you in some way. And, and The Address has always been one of those songs for me. The only thing that I don't know how I feel about is whether is it, there's no cowbell in the song. And that was one that was, a, a you know, there was somebody keeping the time with a cowbell. And uh, that had to have been done either by somebody who wasn't playing anything else. Like, Ian Pace couldn't have done it, or it was done as an overdub. And from everything I've heard, the recording schedule for this album, Shades of Deep Purple, was so intense that there probably was not time to overdub a cowbell track. So I'm guessing somebody else played it. Maybe it was Rod Evans. I don't know. Um, but I'd love to find out. I'd love to get a chance to ask Ian Pace because he's the only one there that... Uh, well, the only one of the band there that would know. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, I feel like it was missing the cowbell. I would like to hear what the cowbell would have sounded like in this version of the song. And keeping with that tradition, it, it almost seems like it's lacking because of it. But that's because I'm so used to it. For somebody that's hearing the song for the first time, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to think twice about it because they didn't know it was there in the first place. So I always wonder when people hear a song that has multiple versions, it seems like they like the first one they've heard the best. And I don't know if it's because that's just what they get used to. That's their impression of the song. So anything else throws off their impression. Um, There's got to be some kind of science or something behind that, but it seems the majority of the time people like the original people like the version they heard first, the best. So for people that hear this version of and the address first, I would be curious to know if they like that better than uh, the original version after they hear that second. I'm just a little curious how that works with people. Uh, But great song. I'm so glad that they included it on the album. I do think it should have been last. Um, Maybe musically that didn't really work out for them, but I think the ending of it is good. It would be a good ending to an album as well. But that's just me. And that's a, that's another important thing when you think about the order of songs is whether the the last song in the album gives it a good ending. Perfect case and example would be You Keep On Moving on Come Taste the Band. I think that that ending was a perfect album ending. And little did they know the ending to the band at that time, because that was the last album they recorded before they broke up during the Tom, Tommy Boland era. Um, but the ending of that song is just perfect for the ending of an album and uh, I think and the address, I think this would have been a good ending, too. They could have carried it out maybe a little more and made it a little more pronounceable if it was going to be the end of the album. But uh, they didn't know at the time anyway, because I would imagine the song order hadn't been chosen while they were working on it. So um, that 
really isn't something that they could have controlled unless they specifically said, we are going to record this as if it is the last song on the album. That's the only way you can get away with it at that stage is if you go in with that intent. Um, but it's a great song. I'm really glad they did it. And I think they did a, they, they definitely did it justice. So kudos to the guys on that as well. And with that, we move into the last song and probably most unique on the album, Dancing in My Sleep. Well, my first thought when the song started, and you don't hear the intro uh, in the clip that I just played, but my first thought was that this is the soundtrack to a video game or like an 80s action movie uh, or something. It just starts out with a really interesting uh, synthesizer. And I uh, really love the, what, what Don created there with that sound because it's uh, very intriguing. Certainly not something that you would expect a song to start out like on a Deep Purple album. But uh, man, it was it was definitely refreshing. And uh, it's played uh, intermittently throughout the song, which I, I like as well. Not overdone, not over pounded on, but uh, just just subtle and here and there. And the song ends with that fading out. Yes, I said it fading out, uh, but very minimally. The song almost has an ending. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I thought uh, I thought the opening feel of it was great. There's a, a Another opportunity here where the vocal delay, I think, does sound really good. Um, it, 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 did it pre-delay? No, I can't remember. Um, but uh, the the voice, again, just just phenomenal. You wouldn't think that these guys are, are the ages that they are. I mean, being in their 70s, you would think that they would not be putting out such uh, ag- aggressive, not really aggressive, but just grooving music that moves forward that... Um, really uh really just makes a statement and it has the power behind it so it's great to see uh the the band doing that this is obviously just all the knowledge that they've built up all the skills over the years are culminating in these albums and it's so great to see them topping the charts i love that this song gives you the ability to hear roger glover and ian pace a little bit more um, drums and bass tend to get buried in keyboard and guitar oriented music. So it's, it's nice to see that they cut through a little bit more on this song. I kind of feel like I haven't talked enough about the quality of Ian Pace's drumming while I've been talking about these songs, but I mean, it is as rock solid as ever. He's, he's definitely got such a, a unique, uh, sound to him and, and not just the tonality, but his, his playing. It's like, you can almost always tell if you hear a track that he's on it. And in fact, I think, I think it was Ready and Willin' or, or Come and Get It. I can't remember. What, it was one of the White Snake albums that he was on, and I didn't know he was on it when I got the album. I just popped the tape in, and immediately my first thought was, is Ian Pace on this? And I looked it up, and sure enough, he was, because he has a very distinct style. But he also has a great sound. Um, in fact, Come and Get It, I'll just side note this really quick. Come and Get It was the album that Whitesnake did with him that I think he had probably one of the best drum sounds I've heard of any album I've heard him play on. And I've heard not everything he's ever done, but the vast majority of it. And so um, 
yeah, that that's one of my favorite albums as far as the the drum sound goes. But uh, it sounds great on this album too. You know, he's he's used the same kit configuration for years, and it definitely works for him. It's very odd when you look at it. I've never seen a drummer set up the way he does. Um, not because he's left-handed, but because of the the extra tom arrangement, and uh, then he has uh, his ride sits pretty low, so that's spaced out where other drummers might put toms. And then you've got the two floor toms. He has two drums that hang above the floor toms but those typically don't get played they're really there more for aesthetic value but um but yeah the the three on the on the hi-hat side is kind of an interesting setup and then the two over the toms is or over the floor toms is an interesting setup don't really see that out of drummers i mean unless you're talking about somebody like you know neil pert or terry bosio who just have these ridiculously insane uh sets and i hope that they have paid their roadies well over the years um but this this honestly uh you know looking at this the the song is great it moves right from the beginning very an- another example of these really interesting transitions that these guys come up with and then of course you know Don's fingers are just absolute magic on his solo just in- incredible playing and you know again it's it's a thing where you you hear speed and you hear technical precision but you also feel something at the same time. I listen to a lot of guys that can play fast, that can play intricate and you just don't get anything out of it. But with the way that Don plays and the same with Steve, you know, he may play fast but there's a story that they're telling in those solos and you can really feel being pulled or pushed or or whatever it is, but you definitely feel something more than just wow cool solo man like there's so much depth to to the way they play so that really does bring us to the end of the album um god i i hope this isn't the last one but i'm gonna say that no matter what i said it with rapture of the deep i said it with bananas i said it with uh you know infant i mean i've said it all along the way i've said it with now what um in the interviews i've heard they have alluded to this probably is the last one but you never know they can't go out and perform just because they're one of the you know top selling bands in history. They don't get to override the virus. They still can't go out and do shows right now. So uh, they're just as stuck. So maybe they'll get an itch and go, you know what, if we can't play for a while, let's uh, let's get together and do some jam sessions. Maybe they'll do it over Zoom or something and um, just kind of feel out some material and then go and spend a, a couple of weeks in the studio with Bob and see if they can can put out another album. I'm hoping for that because we already know that the plans to start touring don't even start until I think it's next spring. I think they have one festival or something that's actually still on the books for this year. I don't know if that'll happen or not, but um, as far as like their normal tour schedule, and they are one of the heaviest touring bands, they do not take a lot of nights off. They just keep playing. So um, I don't know what'll happen. I kind of hope that because we already know that we're looking at spring before tours are going to start again. I kind of hope that they do look at that as an opportunity and maybe they will go record something else. Maybe, uh, maybe they won't, you know, a lot of the material comes from what they learn on tour. So it's hard to say, um, but I'm hopeful, you know, I'm, I'm never going to want it to be the end. And in a way I feel like it's not fair to these guys because they've given us so much. If they just stopped right now, if they said, you know what, we've we've done plenty, we're happy, I want to live out the rest of my life with my family and friends and not, you know, and, and live in my home and not be all over the globe. I I could not complain about that one bit. I really have no right to. But 
at the same time, there's that, you know, fan side of me that just says, yeah, but but it's never going to be enough. No matter how many times I've seen them live, which has been a good number of times, um, I, I have relished every show that I've seen. Uh, there was one venue that I thought was terrible, but uh, apart from that, the band still performed great. So I I have no right to request anything more of these gentlemen except to come on my show. But I, at the same time, would love uh, anything that they decide to continue doing. I would love to to check out and experience because 21 albums is a lot. But, you know, when you spent, you know, I'm I'm going on 50. I think I first found them when I was, I want to say somewhere between nine and 11. It had to be, I, I think uh, the Rainbow Straight Between the Eyes concert was 83, I want to say. So if it was 83, then I would have been 11 when I, when I stumbled across Deep Purple. So I'm, I'm going on 50. So we're talking a lot of years I've spent listening to the music that these uh, guys that have, have been in and out of the band have made. And then there are families, you know, the stuff Glenn Hughes has done and Whitesnake and Rainbow and, and all of that. But uh, I, I, so I, it's a lot of music to enjoy and I really don't have the right to ask for more. But at the same point, it's just hard to know that this might be the end of the collection. I'm sure you guys understand. Um, but enough of me, uh, you know, bantering on about potential sad stuff. This album is fantastic. The The culmination of 50 years of Deep Purple has uh, has created this album and all the things that they are in and outside of the band have, have made them the musicians that they are. And you can you can see just such a, an amazing creative side, such a technical side, such a, a passionate side. And it, it all all gets portrayed in the music. And when you hear these guys talk about the album and you hear them talk about the songs and things that they've been involved with, it, it's just it's such a joy to share in that music with them. And I thank them for everything that I've learned, everything that I've enjoyed, everything that has, uh, you know, sustained during tough times in life. They have uh, they've been there and uh, whether they know it or not. Now, I have uh, had the opportunity to to meet now four of them, and uh, it's it's been great to be able to shake their hands and say thank you for everything. But you know, you know they hear that a lot, and you know that it's it's so heartfelt from each single person, and I know they realize that. But to be able to have the opportunity to say thank you, to shake their hands, to just connect with them in that moment, knowing that they've done so much for me, even though it wasn't obviously directed at me, but they've, they've done so much to uh, enhance my life, both as a musician, as a fan of music. Um, and then just through their personalities, you know, the way that you hear them in interviews, the way they talk about people, the way that they treat people. There's, there's so many great things about this band and everything that surrounds it. And um, I love that they were the first one I saw to do the crew support t-shirts. So while they're unable to tour and make money, so is everyone in their crew and everyone that's in every other band's crew. So they came out with this T-shirt where all the proceeds went to the crew of the band, which I love. Uh, I just saw a posting that Uriah Heap is doing the same thing. So I'm going to post that on uh, on Facebook and uh, I will I will definitely be um, participating in that as well, because there's you know, it's important that uh, not just uh, supporting the band, but supporting the crew that keeps them out on the road. So that's uh, that's it, guys. That's the new album, Whoosh, the 21st studio album from Deep Purple. 
it uh man this went by fast and i'm looking at the clock it's like an hour and a half that uh the show is so far and um wow it's it's just been a joy going over the songs kind of diving into them a little bit i don't know if i was very articulate because i'm so caught up in the music and what's going on and like i said a lot of these um i've only heard a couple times so far so um it's not like any other album i could do where i know a, a lot more of the songs uh, the in-depth the intricacies of the music and all that but there is so much going on in, in each of these songs so many little little things bills and things to look for. So uh, it is available, obviously, everywhere. Amazon, iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Google Play, record stores, used record stores that carry new albums. Um, uh, everywhere. It's everywhere. Just search Deep Purple, Whoosh, and you will find it on in all the places. And I'll put some links up in the show notes as well. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me on another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Keep your fingers crossed as I have reached out and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm certainly not, um, you know, I'm not a uh, world-class podcaster that can just get any guests they want, but uh, I have been very fortunate to have some wonderful people on the show and some more wonderful people that I have lined up. Please help out. Leave a rating on uh, iTunes or Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you're listening and uh, help get the word out about the show. You know, the bigger the the listener base, the the more chance you have of getting those people on the show because the people that are the gatekeepers will certainly be looking at that. And uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. I have no idea who it's going to be yet, but we will be back with an episode one way or another. Thank you guys for joining me. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe out there. And most importantly, please be good to each other. <laughs>